was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner, or person who was in charge of organizing the funeral. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change. Change in this case being short for exchange, as in the stock exchange. It just means that he was well-respected in the business community and his signature meant something. Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. If I, Victorian-era author Charles Dickens, born in England in 1812, and author of other fictions such as Oliver Twist and A Tale of Two Cities, would venture to guess that it comes from a manner of securing doornails that were hammered into a door by clenching them. Clenching is the practice of bending over the protruding end of the nail and hammering it into the wood. When a nail has been clenched, it has been dead-nailed, and it is not easily resurrected to use again. But what do I know? Anyways, did I mention I get paid by the word? Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. In other words, his only friend in the loosest sense of the word and beneficiary to his will. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm about to relate. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood years afterward above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rime was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thought one degree at Christmas. In short, Ebenezer Scrooge was a stingy old bat and he didn't even get nicer at Christmas time. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighboring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. If this is your first experience with England, or Europe in general, it was pretty nasty in the 1800s. We hadn't figured out hygiene yet. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep an eye on his clerk, who in the dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter, a scarf if you're in 2019, and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of a strong imagination, he failed. Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. 
It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, Fred. His face was ruddy from the cold and handsome. His eyes sparkled. Jesus Christ! You came upon me so quickly, that was my first intimation of your approach. Also, bah humbug. Christmas a humbug, uncle? Surely you don't mean that Christmas is nonsense, which is what humbug means in this context. Right, Charles? Yes, Fred. Now stop breaking the fourth wall. The disembodied voice is right, and I do mean that. Merry Christmas. What right do you have to be merry? What reason do you have to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, what right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah, humbug. Don't be cross, uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented debt against you? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle. (sighs) Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and I'll keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then. Much good it may do you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say Christmas among the rest. But I am sure. I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come round as a good time. A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Damn, dude. Nice. The clerk, that's you, Bob, in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Aw, beans. Let me hear another sound from you and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. Which is your job, Robert. And you, I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come dine with us tomorrow. Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. (laughs) Because you fell in love. That's the one thing in this world more ridiculous than Christmas. Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, but I have made the trial an homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So, a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word nonwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk. Merry Christmas, Bob. Merry Christmas, Fred. There's another fellow, my clerk, with 15 shillings a week and a wife and family talking about Merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. Bedlam is an institution for mentally ill people, which in this time period meant like all women who had opinions and anyone who wasn't super dull. So anyway... This lunatic, or Bob as he would prefer to be called, in letting Scrooge's nephew out had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. 
They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. That's dark. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. <laughs> At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries, and hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Uh, plenty of prisons? And the union workhouses? Are they still in operation? You know, workhouses? The institutions where those unable to support themselves were offered accommodation and employment? Are they still in operation? They are. Though I wish that they were not. Oh, I was afraid from what you'd said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and a means of warmth. We chose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you asked me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentlemen withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself and in a more facetious temper than was usual with him. The hour of shutting up has arrived, Cratchit. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. It's quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used. I'd be bound? Uh, that means, would you be mad if I held your pay for the day because I'm mistreating you? And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay for a day's wages for no work? It's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. I assure you, I will, Mr. Scrooge. <sighs> he lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought upon Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon. And then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not an impenetrable shadow as the other objects in the yard were, but it had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. Whatever that means. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge, as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up upon its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred up as if by breath or hot air, and, though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid color, made it horrible, 
but its horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control rather than a part of its own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. What the actual fuck is this? To say that he was not startled or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause with a moment's resolution before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on, so he said, Pooh, pooh, and closed it with a bang. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Every room above and every cask in the wine merchant cellar below appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly, too, trimming his candle as he went. Half a dozen gas lamps out on the street wouldn't have lighted the entry too well. Up Scrooge went, not carrying a button for that. Darkness was cheap and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa. A small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and a little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold upon his head, upon the hob. Nothing under the bed, nobody in the closet, nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Old fire guard, old shoes, two fish baskets, washing stand on three legs, and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double-locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat and put on his dressing gown and slippers, and his nightcap and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell, that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with a chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with a great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that as he looked he saw this bell begin to swing. This might have lasted half a minute, or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun, together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still. I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. The same face, the very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the ladder bristling like his pigtails, and his coat skirts and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent so that Scrooge, observing him, and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. How now? What do you want with me? Oh, much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? You're particular for a shade. Or ghost, I 
that's what you want to be called, I guess. Yeah, like, a shade is a ghost, so, uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other? Anyway, in life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can, can you sit down? I can. Do it then. I asked the question because I didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. Okay. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your reality? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of a gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Hey, Scrooge, maybe don't make this the time you start cracking wise about how this ghost is a result of indigestion. Why? Because of this. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Mercy! Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? You worldly motherfucker! Do you believe in me or not? Marley, that's not the- Whatever. I do. I must, I guess. But why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad amongst his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world, oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share but might have shared on earth, and turned to happiness. <laughs> You're fettered. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard of my own free will. I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full and heavy as and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Jacob? Old Jacob Marley. Tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Oh, simple bitch. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop in the water of the comprehensive ocean of my business. <sighs> At this time of the rolling year, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of my fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light could have conducted me? You really don't need to bring Jesus into- Hear me! My time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me. Maybe sugarcoat it a little. How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see I may not tell? I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. Ugh, that's not an agreeable idea, Jacob. That is no light part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you 
that you have yet a chance and a hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. You were always a good friend to me. Thanks. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I, uh, I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path which I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Ugh, couldn't I have them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. Scrooge examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double locked as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. And, being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, he went straight to bed without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavoring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighboring church struck four quarters, so he listened for the hour. Twelve? It was past two when I went to bed. The clock is wrong, and an icicle might have gotten into the works. Twelve? He touched the spring of his repeater to correct this most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat twelve and stopped. Hey, Ebenezer, what's a repeater? It's a timepiece that's designed to repeat the last chime. I think the bigger issue here is that it isn't possible that I've slept through a whole day and far into another night. Marley's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again like a strong spring release to its first position, and presented the same problem to be worked all through. Was it a dream or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three quarters more, when he remembered, on a sudden, that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour passed, and, considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. A quarter past, half past, a quarter to it. The hour itself. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand. Not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am to you now, as I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. Not to be creepy or anything. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age and yet the face had not. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all of this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap, which was now held under its arm. An extinguisher is what people used to use to put candles out. Even this, though when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality, for as its belt sparkled and glittered now in one part and now in another, 
and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Who in what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? It's funny because you're short. Your past, you jerk. Would you mind covering yourself with your cap? You're a little hard on the eyes. What? Would you so soon put out with world hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are the one of those whose passions made this cap, and force me through whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow? They mean that you tend to ignore the past, Scrooge. Yeah, I get that. I apologize, spirit. That was very rude, so what business do you have here? Your welfare. Again, not to be rude, but I feel as if getting a good night's sleep might be more beneficial. Your salvation, then. Rise and walk with me. It would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather and the hour were not adapted to pedestrian purposes, that the bed was warm and the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing gown and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at that time. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window, clasped his robe in supplication. I am mortal, and I am liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there. The spirit laid a hand upon Scrooge's heart. And you shall be upheld in more than this. Sounds fake, but okay. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. Not a vestige of it was to be seen. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Good heaven! I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, and each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Your lip is trembling, and what is that upon your cheek? It's it's nothing. I'm certainly not crying. Well, what would you say that? Where are we going, anyways? You recollect the way? Remember it? I could walk it blindfolded. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree until a little market town appeared in the distance with its bridge, its church, and winding river. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them, with boys upon their backs who called to other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. Oh, look, there's there's John and Benedict and Edward. These are but shadows of the things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. He filled with gladness when he heard them give each other a merry Christmas as they parted at crossroads and byways for their several homes. What was a merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas, what good had it ever done him? The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child neglected by his friends is left there still. I know. They left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used. Their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken, and their gates decayed. They went, the ghost and Scrooge, across the hall to a door at the back of the house. 
It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made bare still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form and wept to see his poor forgotten self as he used to be. The spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self, intent upon his reading. Poor boy. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker and more dirty. How all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct that everything had happened so, that there he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in and putting her arms around his neck and often kissing him. I've come to bring you home, dear brother. Home, little fan? Yes, home for good and all. Home forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be that home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said... Yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you, and you're to be a man, and are never to come back here, but first we're to be together all the Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered, but she had a large heart. So she had. You're right. I will not argue that, spirit. God forbid. She died a woman, and had, as I think, children? One child. True. Your nephew. Yes. Although they had but a moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city, where shadowy passengers passed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here, too, it was Christmas time again, but it was evening and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door. Do you know this place? I know it. I was apprenticed here. Because back in my day, it was traditional for young men to apprentice with someone in order to learn a trade. I know. I'm literally the ghost of Christmas past. I just thought it might be nice to explain. They went in. At the sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, a type of yield knit beanie, sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling. Why, it's, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice. Yo-ho! There, Ebenezer! Dick! Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice. Yo-ho, my boys! No more work tonight! Clear the way, my lads, and let's leave lots of room here! Clear away? There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away, or couldn't have cleared away, with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off, as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept and watered, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright a ballroom as you would ever desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned like fifty stomach aches. Away they all went, twenty couple at once, hands half round and back again, the other way down the middle and up again. There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and there were mince pies, and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled. 
two very English ways of preparing beef, when old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple, too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwug took their stations on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually, as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two prentices, they did the same to them, and thus the cheerful voices died away, and the lads were left to their beds, which were under a counter in the back shop. During the whole of this time, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now, when the bright faces of his former self and Dick were turned away from them, that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him while the light upon its head burnt very clear. A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? Is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money. I that so much that he deserves this praise? Isn't that spirit? He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives it's, is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What is the matter? Nothing particular. Something, I think. No... No, I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all. His former self turned down the lamps, he gave utterance to the wish, and Scrooge and the ghost again stood side by side in the open air. My time grows short. This was not addressed to Scrooge or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect, for again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye which showed the passion that had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone but sat by the side of a fair young girl in whose eyes there were tears, which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little to you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until, in good season, we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. Your own feeling tells you that you are not what you are. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no. Never. In what, then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope as its great end, in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me. Would you seek me out and try to win me now? Uh, no! You think not? I would gladly think otherwise if I could. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowryless girl who you, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain, or 
choosing her, if for a moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so, do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do. And I release you with a full heart and for the love of him you once were. She left him and they parted. Spirit, remove me from this place. I told you these were shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me, I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face in which some strange way there were fragments of all the other faces it had shown him, wrestled with it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle, in which the ghost with no visible resistance on its own part was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright. And dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized the extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form, but though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light, which streamed from under it, in an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and, further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze, in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Hello, hello. It's me, the ghost who haunts your phone. Just kidding, it's actually me, Avalon, the host of Boohaha, which is a thing that I do. A podcast, if you will, that happens some weeks, not all. Don't wait up, it's fine, we'll call you. Shut up. Anyway, it's about ghosts and tangents. Mostly tangents, if I'm being entirely honest. So join me each and every week-ish as I gather the funniest people I know to a campfire that I build in my living room and then regale them with spooky tales of boogans and googas. Oh, also, it's a comedy podcast, if that wasn't clear from the vibe, you know. Awaking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. Would you mind telling me which spirit is going to draw back my curtain this time? I would prefer not to be caught off guard. No, it would undermine the dramatic tension I'm building. Be quiet. (sighs) Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant or what would be at, and was sometimes apprehensive that he might be at that very moment an interesting case of spontaneous combustion without having the consolation of knowing it. At last he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light may be in the adjoining room, from whence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. Come in and know me better, man. Great. Fine. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. 
but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense cakes, and steaming bowls of punch that made their chamber dim with their delicious steam. In an easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in, and know me better, man! Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. I'm the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face. Its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family? Meaning I, for I am very young, my elder brothers born here in these later years. I don't think I have. Have you many brothers, Spirit? <laughs> More than 1,800? A tremendous family to provide for. <laughs> Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion and learnt a lesson, which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Uh, okay. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit, and punch all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings, and from the tops of their houses whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumping down into the road below, and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been plowed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons, furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched off. The people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets. The poulterers' shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street in their apoplectic opulence. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel and away they came flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. 
The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bears passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. It was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly. For they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day, and so it was, God love it, and so it was. In the time the bells ceased and the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if the stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavor in which you sprinkle from your torch? That is a strange way to ask that. But there is. My own! Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? To any kindly given. To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? Because it needs it most. And perhaps it was the good pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature and his sympathy with all poor men that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with a sprinkling of his torch. Then rose Mrs. Cratchit, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth assisted by Belinda Cratchit, the second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son and heir in the honor of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, a boy and a girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and known it was their own. And basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. Whatever has got your precious father, then? Had your brother, Tiny Tim. And Martha warn't his late last Christmas day by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother. Oh, I bless your heart alive, my dear. How late you are. We'd a deal of work to finish up last night. Well, never mind, so long as you're come. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where is our Martha? Oh, not coming. Not coming? Upon Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only in joke, so she came up prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off to the wash house, that he might hear the pudding sink in the copper. Okay, two things, spirit. One, wash house? The laundry room. They had their Christmas dessert cooking over the fire there. Ah. Second, why does Belinda sound so much like her father? Eh, We had a limited budget. But how did little Tim behave? As good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. It might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day 
who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in the tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their post, crammed spoons in their mouth lest they should shriek for the goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all around the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There was never such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there was ever such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Ecked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, they hadn't ate it all at last, yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room, alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. At last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew around the hearth. Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us, everyone! He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. Oh, no, 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 kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If the shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Man, will you decide what men shall live? What men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than the millions like this poor man's child. Mr. Scrooge, I want to honor Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. Founder of the feast, indeed. If I'd had him here, I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it. Dear, it's Christmas. It should be Christmas Day, I'm sure, on which one drinks to the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, and unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. I'll drink to his health for your sake and the days, not for his. Long life to him and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. 
the mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for a full five minutes. After it passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. All this time the chestnuts in the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow, from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed, their shoes were far from being waterproof, their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known and very likely did the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, and pleased with one another, and contented with the time, and when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. It was a great surprise to Scrooge to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. If you should happen, by any unlikely chance, to know a man more blessed in a laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him too. Introduce him to me, and I'll cultivate his acquaintance. He said that Christmas was a humbug. He believed it, too. More shame for him, Fred. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he's ever going to benefit us with it. <laughs> I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I'm sorry for him. I, I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself. Always. Here, he takes it into his head to dislike us and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He doesn't lose much of a dinner. <laughs> Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. Everybody else said the same, and they must be allowed to have been competent judges, because they had just had dinner, and, with the dessert upon the table, were clustered round the fire by lamplight. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him if he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. It was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge, but being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring what they laughed at, so they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him, Scrooge looking in a good mood as he observed, and looked upon him with such favor that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guest departed. My time grows short. Let us play a game. Oh, here is a game. One half hour spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something and the rest must find out what, he only answering to their questions yes or no as the case was. 
the brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, rather a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes, and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and was never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass, or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cat, or a bear. At every fresh question that was put to him, this nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. At last, Scrooge's niece called out the answer. I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. (laughs) What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge. Which it certainly was. Admiration was the universal sentiment, though some objected that the reply to, is it a bear, ought to have been, yes, insomuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted their thoughts from Mr. Scrooge, supposing they had any tendency that way. He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. (laughs) Here is a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment, and I say... To Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, whatever he is. He wouldn't take it from me, but he may have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last word spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. Are spirit's life so short? My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight, at midnight. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is, is it like a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. They were a boy and a girl. Yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand, like that of age, had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade, through all the mysteries of wonderful creation, has monsters half so horrible and dread. Oh, uh, dear God, they're... Love, are they yours? They are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware of them both, and all of their degree. But most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see that is written, which is doom. Unless the writing be erased, deny it. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. 
As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes beheld a solemn phantom draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached, but when it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. Uh, am, am I in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come? The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. That is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. The spirit paused a moment as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intendedly fixed upon him while he, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. Lead on, lead on. The night is waning fast and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were in the heart of it. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Observing that the hand was pointed to them, Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, I don't know much about it either way. I only know that he's dead. When did he die? Last, last night, I believe. Why? What was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. God knows. What has he done with his money? Oh, I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me. That's, that's all I know. <laughs> it's likely to be a very cheap funeral for, upon my life, I don't know anybody who'd go to it. Suppose we make a party and volunteer? I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed if if I make one. <laughs> <laughs> Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided on into the street. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to the conversation apparently so trivial. But feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, for that was the past, and this ghost province was the future. Nor could he think of anyone immediately connected with himself to whom he could apply them, but nothing doubting that to whomever they applied, they had some latent moral for his own improvement. He resolved to treasure up every word he heard, and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared, 
for he had an expectation that the conduct of his future self would give him the clue that he missed, and would render the solution of these riddles easy. Spirit, I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in an awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced round it in an obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced towards the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would have been to do, and longed to do it, but had no more the power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the specter at his side. He lay in the dark, empty house with not a man or a woman or a child to say that he was kind to me in this or that, or for the memory of one kind word I will be kind to him. A cat was tearing at the door, and there was a sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone. What they wanted in the room of death, and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me. Let's go. Still the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I, I understand you, and I would do it if, if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. If there is any person in this town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, show, show that person to me, spirit, I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him, like a wing, and withdrawing it revealed a room by daylight, where a mother and her children were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room, started at every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock, tried but in vain to work with her needle, and could hardly bear the voices of the children in their play. At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed, and which he struggled to repress. He sat down to the dinner that had been hoarding for him by the fire, and when she asked him faintly what news, which was not until after a long silence, he appeared embarrassed how to answer. Is it good or bad? Uh, bad. Are we quite ruined? Uh, no. There, there's hope yet, Carolyn. If he relents, nothing is past hope. If such a miracle has happened... He, he is past relenting. Uh, he, he's dead. She was a mild, patient creature if her face spoke the truth, but she was thankful in her soul to hear it, and she said so with clasped hands. She prayed forgiveness the next moment and was sorry, but the first was the emotion of her heart. <laughs> what, what his housekeeper, whom I told you of last night, said to me when I tried to see him and obtain a week's delay, and what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me, turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, he was dying. <laughs> uh, to whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know! <laughs> but, but before that time, we shall be ready with the money. And even though we were not, it would be a bad fortune indeed to find such a merciless accreditor in his successor. So we may sleep tonight with light hearts, Carolyn. <laughs> yes, soften it as they would, their hearts were lighter. 
The children's faces, hushed and clustered round to hear what they so little understood, were brighter, and it was a happier house for this man's death. The only emotion that the ghost could show him caused by the event was one of pleasure. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death, or, or that dark chamber spirit which we just left now will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and the children seated round the fire. Quiet. Very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner and sat looking upon Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. The mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. Oh, the color hurts my eyes. The color? They're better again now. It makes them weak by candlelight. And I wouldn't show weak, weak eyes to your father when he comes. It must be near his time. Past it, rather. But I think he has walked a little slower than he used to these few last evenings, Mother. I have known him, t- known him to walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. But he was very light to carry, and his father loved him so much. It was no trouble. Oh, no trouble. Oh, there's, there's your father at the door now. She hurried out to meet him, and little Bob and his comforter, he had need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to it the most. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. They would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? You went today then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. They would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, he and his child would have been farther apart perhaps than they were. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. There was a chair set close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down on it. He was reconciled to what had happened, and he went down again quite happy. Mrs. Cratchit kissed him, and his daughters kissed him, and the two young Cratchits kissed him, and Peter and himself shook hands. Spirit of Tiny Tim, thy childish essence was from God. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me, what man was that who we saw lying dead? The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before, though at a different time, he thought. Indeed, there seemed no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future, into the resorts of businessmen, but showed him not himself. Indeed, the spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on, as to the end just now desired, until besought by Scrooge to tarry for a moment. This court through which we hurry now is is where my place of occupation is, and has been for some length of time. I see the house. Let me, let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The spirit stopped. The hand was pointed elsewhere. The house is yonder. Why do you point away? The inexorable finger underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again, and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look round before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying. 
The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced towards it, trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I the man who lay upon the bed? The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. Spirit, hear me. I'm not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been, but for this intercourse. Why, why show me this, if I'm past all this? If I'm past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows that you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try and keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on the stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own, to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time will be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. I, I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather and I'm happy as an angel. I am merry as a schoolboy. I am giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody. A happy new year to the world. Even you, disembodied voice. Merry Christmas, Scrooge. Now, we have to be getting on. He had frisked into the sitting room and was now standing there, perfectly winded. There, there's the saucepan that the grill was in. There's the door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. There's the corner where the ghost of Christmas present sat. There's the window where I saw the wandering spirits. It's all right. It's all true. It's all happened. <laughs> really, for a man who had been so out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh, a most illustrious laugh the father of a long line of brilliant laughs. I, I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. <laughs> Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist. Clear, bright, jovial, stirring cold. Cold, piping for the blood to dance to. Golden sunlight, heavenly sky, sweet, fresh air, merry bells. What's today? He called downward to a boy in Sunday clothes, who perhaps had loitered in to look about him. Hey, for real? What's today, my fine fellow? Why is Christmas Day? It's Christmas Day! I haven't missed it! The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Yeah? You, do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the, at the corner? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold that prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey, the big one. What? The one as big as me? <laughs> what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. 
it's hanging there now. It is. Go and buy it. Oh, Walker. Or that's a load of bullshit if you don't speak Victorian slang. No, no, I'm in earnest. Go and buy it and tell him to bring it here, that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with a man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at the trigger who could have got a shot off half so fast. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's. <laughs> he won't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. As he stood there awaiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it as long as I live. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has in its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Here's the turkey. How are you? Merry Christmas. It was a turkey. He never could have stood upon his legs, that bird. He would have snapped him short off in a minute like sticks of sealing wax. Uh, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy, were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless again in his chair, and chuckled until he cried. He dressed himself all in his best, and last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He had not gone far when coming on towards him he beheld the portly gentleman who had walked into his counting house the day before and said, Scrooge and Marley's, I believe? My dear sir, how do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Yes, that's my name. And I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness to make a donation in my name for... Scrooge whispered in the man's ear. Oh, Lord. oh bless me. <laughs> dear Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favor? My dear sir, I don't know what to say to this much munificence. Don't, don't say anything, please. Thank you. I'm much obliged to you. I thank you 50 times. Bless you. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything, could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock, but he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? Yes, sir. Where is he, my dear? He's in the dining room, sir, along with the mistress. I'll show you up the stairs, if you please. Thank you. He knows me. I'll go in here, my dear. He turned in gently and sidled his face in round the door. Brad! Why, bless my soul, who is that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in? It was a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes, and nothing could have been heartier. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful unanimity, wonderful happiness. He was early at the office the next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was a full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. 
Hello. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I'm behind on my time. You are? Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer, and therefore... He left from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again. And therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help in a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. That's a type of mulled wine. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before I dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins and have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with the spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be true said of any of us, and of all of us. And so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone! did amazing have fun editing out those cops yeah. oh god that was very good emily very funny uh um so this is the part of the show where we introduce our voice actors <laughs> Sorry, i didn't know there was more work to be done <laughs> um let's go in alphabetical order which i have uh written down here nope so we have uh, Boohaha's own Avalon Leonetti. Hello! Who was Marley, young Scrooge, charity man number one, Mrs. Cratchit, old man, young boy, and man. I'm also eating celery. <laughs> <laughs> um, me, Emily, of Afternoon to Fight a Monster Pod fame, uh, was Charles Dickens, sort of. <laughs> Uh, Sadie, me. our resident Canadian, was Christmas past Bob Cratchit, Belinda Cratchit, and Clara, Sarah, Yo, was Scrooge. And a very good Scrooge she was. Thank you. I, I identify very heavily with the character. So. <laughs> also, I would like to point out that you did a Christmas thing before Thanksgiving. Yes! <laughs> you can't see me right now, but I am dancing. She is. I can vouch for that. Only for you, Emily. Only for you. <laughs> Uh, we have our very special guest, Charm, who was Fred, Martha, other man, Belle, Fanny, and Fanny, and I'm pretty sure one other part. And also Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> and also Canadian. <laughs> and then we have Travis. Oh, hi. Travis performing as Buddy Norman. <laughs> uh, 
Ghost of Christmas Present, Tiny Tim, Charity Man Number Two, The Maid, and Fezziwig. And Young Man, and which young, you added last minute. And Young Man. <laughs> and Girl. Uh, and uh, that was made. I just titled things differently. Again, <laughs> I pulled this together very quickly. And you did a fantastic job. Um, thank you for joining us in what is a very high bar that I have set for Christmas specials. <laughs> I'd, like, non- I'd like to think of it as the most convoluted episode of Boo Ha yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's ghosts. We talked about presidents. See? <laughs> Wait, is the president's talk going in? <laughs> I was actually not recording that. Oh, good. Um, that's my bad. Just know that we did talk about presidents. <laughs> <laughs> also, I would like to beseech to the ghost of Charles Dickens, why the fuck didn't you believe in periods? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, this concludes the uh, after Monster Haha. Christmas episode. Sarah, this afternoon, if I'd have stuff coming out after this. Oh my God. Are you going to make me look at a calendar? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we're off next week. All right. And then there's a hiatus some point there, but we'll deal with that when we come to it. Um, this is a monster pod is technically on hiatus right now until, I don't know, January ish. And uh, I don't know. You were, you know where to find us. Avalon, since you're a guest, go ahead and. There will be an episode of Boo Haha coming out sometime within the next three to five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know where to find all of us. Charm, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Hi, I'm a human being and I exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a good point to fade out on some <laughs> Christmas music. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Merry Christmas, Bye. happy holidays, etc. A joyous meal you will to you all. Hello, my name is Kaya. And I'm Marissa. And this is Well, Well, Why Not? Not. Join us every Monday as we discuss movies, science, technology, history. Sometimes I think about all the different things we talk about and they're not even categories. Because you know what? We're geeky. We're nerdy. So like every millennial, we started a podcast. Because that's what we need. More podcasts. Absolutely. Join us every Monday and listen to Well, Why Not? A podcast because. Just because. Just just really because we had this microphone. Well, why not? <laughs> For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.